And then I'm going to go to Luke chapter 11. And we're talking about prayer. And um, in, in Luke 11, uh, Jesus' disciples come to him and, th- and they want to know something about the subject of prayer. As I was meditating on this this week, I kind of had a flashback in my mind of attending a pastor's meeting in Birmingham, Alabama many years ago. Um, I was about a year into my ministry uh, vocationally after college, and we had enough uh, Christian Missionary Alliance churches in the Birmingham area that um, we could have a local uh, minister's group uh, of just the... um, official workers in the greater Birmingham region, and so we met once a month, and I, I remember it was probably about 25 or 26, I was trying to think of that this morning, probably, no, probably 23 or 4, I was fairly young, and um, I went to this uh, group, and, and I was really excited, I was going to be starting a study on prayer, and I, uh, you know, announced that I was going to be teaching on the subject of prayer. And uh, one of the guys there who was at the other end of his career, he was about ready to retire, and, uh, and he said, prayer. He said, wow. He said, prayer is a mystery. And I thought, man, he's been at this 40 years longer than, than I have, and he doesn't know anything about prayer yet. It's still a mystery to him. Uh, I don't know what to think of that. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that 40 years later, I think I know what he meant. Um, (laughs) Prayer is a mystery. There's a lot about prayer that is elusive. And, you know, I don't know what your experience is, but but I'm sure that you've got a lot of mystery surrounding the subject. And and I'm certain that, you know, you wonder, uh, okay, if God knows what I need, should I pray? I mean, should we be asking him anyway? And uh, what difference is it going to make? Uh, aren't I going to get it anyway? And uh, then, then you wonder. Uh, okay, I prayed for a lot of things; they never happened. And um, it seems like life just goes on. Uh, you know, do you say your prayers? And that's kind of what it feels like. Well, I'm just going through the routine. I'm just, I'm just following the road. I'm just saying my prayers. Uh, I'm supposed to pray. When I eat, I'm supposed to pray. When I go to bed, I'm supposed to pray. When I get up, I'm supposed to pray. So, so you see, you go through all this stuff in your mind, but do you see God's involvement in your life day by day, day after day, in a regular, consistent way? Do you see Him actively interacting with you about the issues of your life, and do you see answers? You know, we can ask the question, what is effective prayer? And I believe I can answer that question scripturally. Effective prayer is prayer that gets answered. And I don't mean, now wait a while, forever, maybe if it be your will in Jesus' name, amen, however it turns out, okay, uh, and no is just as good as yes. No, I mean, effective prayer is prayer that you know that God has answered in the affirmative. He has given you a response that you were, that you were looking for. That's effective prayer. I think I can support that biblically. And so the question is, how do we pray effectively? 
And I think that was on the disciples' mind when they asked him in the first part of uh, Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, the Jews prayed all the time. They, they prayed when they washed their hands. They prayed when they fixed their food. They prayed when they ate their food. They prayed after they ate their food. They prayed in the morning. They prayed at night. They prayed when they went to the synagogue. They prayed about everything, and they had prayers, they said. You know, they, they went through the, the ritual and the form, and they prayed those prayers. And I'm not dissing litany right now, by the way. Um, I, I think you can pray certain um, kind of liturgical prayer and mean it and be involved in it, and, and it can be genuine and sincere. So I'm not particularly criticizing that entirely as a, a method of prayer. Um, I had a very, very good friend here before he moved to Minnesota to become district, uh, district superintendent of uh, the Missouri Senate District in that region. And he pastored Zion Lutheran. His name was Tom Acton. And, uh, of course, uh, being Missouri Senate, he was in a liturgical church. And being a former Southern Baptist, I was, I'm about as liturgical as they come. And so it was an interesting uh, combination. But we had a great fellowship together because he really loved the Lord. And he really knew the gospel, and he really preached the gospel. And um, I remember talking with him about um, the vestry and vestments. That's the first time I ever really understood what a vestry was. I mean, again, I came up with Baptist. We didn't know we had a vestry, but it was the place where everybody kind of got together and congregated, or the narthex, or whatever. But it was off to the side. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But uh, but Tom, you know, was talking because I I. You know what I wear when I preach? Well, he put on a collar and a gown and, you know, a robe and all that kind of stuff. And and I, and I so we were talking about that one day, and he says, you know, when I go into the vestry and I put on the vestment, he said, for me, that is a, a very solemn moment. He said, it's, it's a very profound time of worship because he said, I'm, I'm donning a mantle, a garment that signifies the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going out to proclaim the truth in God's power. And he said, I, I, I think about that when I, when I robe. And I thought, wow, okay. <laughs> if that's what's going through your heart and mind, I like heartily endorse that. That is really, really neat. But unfortunately, oftentimes with liturgy or litany, it simply becomes rote ritual that loses all meaning as people go through the mantras and the, and the habits and the practice, and, and they lose connection with anything that it has to do with. And so many times, you know, prayers like that, but I think the disciples were looking at Jesus and they were saying, yeah, he prays before meals, he, he says the, the prayers that we pray, um, and he prays at different times in synagogue and whatever, but but we watch him when he communes with his father, and he's different. He he talks to him like a person, and wow, things happen when he prays. So I think all this was in their mind. They said, "Lord, we want to know how to pray like that." And I don't know about you, but I want to know how to pray like that. I want to know what, what are the, the, the keys, what are the ingredients in my heart and life and communication with God that when I talk to Him, things 
happen here. That would not have happened if I had not prayed. And I can identify those things as directly related to the prayers I have been praying. See, that's, that's the thing. And I think so many times we go to a prayer meeting or whatever, and, and we don't have that connection. I'll get to that in a moment. But, but we don't see the results. So after Jesus shares with them this model prayer, he tells them a story. He says, uh, prayer is kind of like this. And now he's addressing not the, the outline, not the form, but he's addressing the passion of prayer. And he said, it's like if one of you uh, has a friend that uh, shows up your, at your house at midnight. Now, it's kind of interesting when you, when you read this passage, and one of the commentators, I think it was Ironside, uh, noticed this, that it could actually be translated, a friend had, had gotten off his way. It, it almost, you wonder, why would somebody show up at midnight? You know, most people don't plan to arrive at midnight. And so... Uh, the suggestion is that perhaps something happened on his journey and it sort of waylaid him in one way or another. And he says, well, I have this friend over here in this town and I can go to his house and he'll give me a place to rest and he'll give me some food and I can be refreshed and I'll start again tomorrow. So he shows up at midnight and he knocks on his friend's door and his friend lets him in. And all of a sudden he realizes with great embarrassment his friend is hungry and he has nothing to give him. And what do you do at midnight? I mean, you can't run out to Meyer. I mean, they couldn't run out to Meyer in the daytime, much less at night. So what do you do when you don't have any food at midnight? And so he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my neighbor's house, and I'm going to get some bread from him. Chances are, you know, he's got a family. He's, they've probably got some extra bread ready for the morrow, and I'm going to go borrow some bread. So he goes next door to his friend's house, and he knocks on the door, and uh, he calls out, and he says, I... Neighbor, I have a friend, and he's hungry. He just showed up at my house. I don't have any food. I, I need to borrow some bread. You know what it's like when somebody knocks on your door in the middle of the night, and you're, you're, you're in bed, and you're asleep, and you, you, know, you kind of look out the window and say, what's going on? There's no emergency that you can see. and It's like, I'm not going to answer that. So he knocks again. Neighbor, neighbor, I need some bread. Open up. I've got, I've got a friend. I've got a guest. He's hungry. I need some bread. And the guy says, go away already. I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. The whole family's asleep. What's wrong with you? It's midnight. Leave me alone. And the guy pounds louder. And he keeps knocking. And you know, and I can just see the guy saying to his wife, well, we're awake now, and he's obviously not going to quit. So I'm just going to go give him some bread, and, and he'll go away. So he gets up, and he gives him some bread, and he says, There, take it. Get out of my face. Leave me alone. Let me go back to sleep. And so he goes back, and he's able to serve his friend who has come off the journey. And Jesus says, and if you look uh, down in verse 8 of Luke 11, Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, 
There's a similar story to this in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus begins, Luke starts that chapter, Jesus begins by saying, men ought always to pray and not faint. And he talks about a widow who has, uh, is suffering some injustice. Someone's trying to extort her or someone's trying to, to take advantage of her in some way. And um, there's the, the local judge. And this local judge is a rascal. He doesn't give one whit about human beings and he doesn't even respect God. Um, the Bible kind of represents him as an arrogant kind of uh, fellow. And uh, she goes to the judge and she says, I need help in this situation. I need you to take action on my behalf. And he basically says, go away. And so, next day he's sitting on his seat, wherever it is, town square, gate, I don't know. He's sitting on the judgment seat in his official capacity. And he looks up and who's there but this woman again. And she says... Your Honor, I have a matter that needs your attention. And he says, Lady, leave me alone. And so she goes away, and then the next day he goes to his bench, and he looks up, and there she is again. Your Honor, I have a matter that needs attention. Well, this goes on for a while. And finally he says, You know what? I don't care about this woman. I don't care about her problem. I don't care about the, the, the people that are bothering her. I don't even care what God thinks. But she is not going to leave me alone. I'm not going to get any rest until I do something. So I'm going to have to handle this just to get her out of my hair. And so he responds and he brings a decision and it solves her situation. And Jesus says, again... I tell you, even though this judge does not fear God and doesn't care one whit about human beings, he will give her what she wants because she won't let it go. Now, one of the biggest problems that people have when they go to interpret parables is that they try to make too much out of them. In fact, there's, a, there's a, a principle about interpreting a parable. A parable is a story that is told to illustrate a point, a single point. We're talking about prayer, and Jesus is talking about a certain kind of passion or attitude in prayer that brings results. We can't get sidetracked with sleepy neighbors and arrogant judges. We can't get sidetracked with all that other stuff because it has no bearing on the meaning of the parable other than to set the stage. What Jesus is really driving at is that the kind of prayer that gets results is prayer that is fervent, passionate, persistent. In fact... As you read on uh, in verse 8, he says, Yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And this word persistence, or as some translations put it, importunity, is a translator's polite way of, of saying this gently. The, the original language actually says, because of his 
impudence. Because of his impudence. The word here in the Greek means without shame, without modesty, without reverence, brash, brazen, forceful, impudent. Jesus says, I tell you, because of impudence, this guy is going to get what he wants. And the thing that Jesus is underscoring here is a kind of passion that brings results in prayer. It's the kind of passion that says, God, I am not going away until I get an answer. God, I need this. And we're going to talk about it until I get some relief and some solution. I'm not letting this go. It's almost like you begin to pray and then the next day you go and you say, Lord, here I am again. Now, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves before we move too much further is, Jesus is commending this impudent neighbor and this persistent woman for their diligence and passion. And yet in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be like the heathen and the pagans who think that they're going to be heard for their many words, their vain repetitions. Don't be like them. And I have to ask the question, what is the difference between passionate persistence and vain repetition? And I think that's a good question. Do any of you know what a prayer wheel is? Have you ever seen a, a Hindu prayer wheel? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's, it's a little circle. You can write your prayer down on a piece of paper and clip it on, and the wheel goes round and round. And every time your paper goes to the top uh, with your little request on it, it's, it's believed to, to go up, uh, to, to get answered, which is kind of interesting for Hindu because they have more than 3,000 gods. But I guess on the other hand, there's a lot of them up there to intercept it. But... You know, other people do it other ways. Um, you know, some of them have a bunch of candles out in the foyer, and you can go light a candle, and your candle keeps burning so that your prayer is always going up, you know. Um, some people use a formula. Now they lay me down to sleep. You know, I forgot how the rest of it goes. I quoted it at 8 o'clock, but that's what happens when you're 40 years into your ministry. Um, but anyway, we, we use this formula and we think, okay, if I just say this enough, if I just go over the same words, there's magic in the formula, abracadabra, that's the deal. You know, give me the right words. No, Jesus is saying, pagans pray that way. Don't do that. That's not what's effective. What is effective, though, is if what you're asking matters to you. How many times do you have a, a, a prayer time personally or in a group and you come to the time of a German or you finished and you don't have any idea what anybody prayed for? How many times do, do, you, do you have a time in your own personal life and you're praying and <laughs> you kind of wake up and realize, I was fishing, I thought I was praying, but... I'm I'm looking at that new rod and reel I got. I mean, do you ever have your mind wander like that? Like, wow. 
Jesus is saying, in essence, if it doesn't matter to you, you think I'm going to say it doesn't matter to God, right? No, I'm not going to say that. It does matter to God, but but God is waiting for it to really matter to you, to get involved with you. If it doesn't matter to you, in some ways it's almost insulting to God. I'm here talking, but I don't even know what I'm talking about. And when I'm done, I don't even know what I said. Well, how do you expect to get an answer? And quite honestly, if you did get an answer, would you know it? Because you don't remember what you asked. It just kind of went through, and, and, and there's no correlation between what you're praying and what you're, you're receiving. And Jesus is saying, the kind of prayer that is effective is prayer that is persistent, prayer that is passionate, prayer that it's the kind of thing you ask God about it, but when you're driving down the road, it's on your mind. And when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's on your mind. And when you go to pray the next day, it's on your mind. I haven't seen an answer, God. And I just want to remind you that this is really this is really concerning me. I need some help here. I need some guidance. I need this solution. And it's so much a part of you that that you're tasting it, you're smelling it. It's it's coming out of your heart. Jesus said that's the kind of prayer that God really gets involved with and pays attention to. He's invested when you're passionate. So, are we passionate in prayer? Do you remember the story of Elijah? Uh, you, you know his contest with the prophets of Baal? Um, there had been a drought, a long drought. It had lasted three years, primarily because God told Elijah to pray that it wouldn't rain. He prayed and it didn't rain. It didn't rain for three years and the land is suffering and the people are, you know, are hungry and the crops have failed and, and things are not looking good. And finally, Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. And uh, he gets uh, all the, the prophets of Baal surrounding this altar. And he says, we're going to have a contest. We're going to see who, which God is really the Lord. Uh, and so um, we're going to build an altar here. We're going to pile the wood on. We're going to put a sacrifice on it. And whichever God answers by fire... Um, is the real God. But by the way, you can't have any matches. So you just got to ask God to send fire from heaven. And the prophets of Baal, the scripture says they dance all day, they, they wail, they moan, they cry, they cut themselves. They, you got to give them credit for passion. Okay? But they just, they, just happen, they just happen to be connected to the wrong God. There's the problem there. They're, they can't get an answer. So finally, after they've gone all day and they haven't, uh, you know, they haven't accomplished anything, it's it's uh, getting it's getting past uh, the midday or whatever. Um, Elijah says, "Okay, my turn." He says, "Just so that uh, everybody knows, there's no funny business here. Uh, get the water, and I want you to douse the fire. I want you to douse the wood. I want you to douse the sacrifice. Dig a trench around it. Fill it up with water. We're going to have this thing floating in water." And then all he does is just pray a simple prayer, and Fire comes out of heaven, and the, and the whole the whole thing is gone. I mean, not only the sacrifice, but the wood. Everything's gone. Even the water's gone. It's like okay, no question who God is. And so uh, Elijah deals with the prophets of Baal, and then he goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he takes his servant with him. And on top of Mount Carmel, the scripture says he puts his head down between his knees and he begins to ask, 
for rain. Now, can you see him there? He's sitting down. He's got his knees drawn up. He's got his head down between his knees. And he's praying that God will bring rain. How do you think he prayed? Lord, send us rain in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think so. Um, And he says to his servant, uh, go look out on the horizon and tell me what you see. Servant goes out, comes back. I hate to tell you this, Elijah, but there's not a cloud in the sky, man. It's nothing but blue sky as far as I can see. Okay, I'm going to pray some more. He's down, he's praying, he's got his head between his knees, and he's just crying out to God. Don't you think he was, listen, he is on the line. And I don't know if he knows it by now, but Jezebel is not happy. And uh, he is in earnest. And he says to his servant again, all right, go look. The guy comes back and he says, oh, man, Elijah, I'm sorry. It doesn't look any different than it did before. In fact, it's more intense blue. I mean, it's just sea and blue. It's just all it is. There's not a cloud anywhere. All right, pray some more. And Elijah says he sends his servant seven times. On the seventh time, the guy comes back and says, well, for what it's worth, there's this little white thing out there, puffy cloud. It's about, it's about as big as my hand, Elijah. I, I mean, I don't know what kind of rain you're going to get from that, but there's a cloud out there. And Elijah says, yes! He says, go tell Ahab to get down off the mountain and get back to where he's supposed to be because he's going to get flooded out in his chariot if he doesn't move right now. And, and uh, he, he goes racing down the mountainside. And the scripture says the storm clouds gather and the, and the rains roll in from the sea and drench the land with water like they desperately needed. And James says, when you're praying for one another, remember Elijah. Remember that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Another time, it's kind of humorous in some ways, Remember when Peter got arrested, they'd already put James to death. It made some of the Jews so happy that they decided, well, we'll arrest Peter, and after the feast, we'll put him to death. And everybody's going to be really ecstatic. And so they arrest Peter, they put him in jail, and the church says, oh, Lord, we've already lost James, we can't lose Peter, too. They call a prayer meeting, and they're together, and they're praying, and they're praying into the night. They're praying through the night. They are earnest. I mean, they really want God to deliver Peter. And then all of a sudden they hear this knock on the courtyard gate and Rhoda goes out to check and see who's there and she hears Peter's voice. And the thing I think is kind of funny is she doesn't let him in. <laughs> she she runs she runs back inside and says, I Peter's voice is angel or something's out there. And it's like well go let him in. You know, and the people were amazed. They weren't even expecting him. Do you ever pray like that? I mean, you're praying so fervently, and then the answer comes, and it's like, wow, I didn't expect that. Well, why not? I mean, they were surprised. But God sent an angel to the prison to not only open the prison door, but walked him right out of there in front of the guards. They didn't even see him. And takes him back to the church and delivers him. And it's like, God comes through for them because they are desperate. Lord, we can't do Without Peter, we've got to have him. Friends, 
When you pray, are you desperate? Are you passionate? Do you really know what you want? And are you persistent? I put a note in your study guide. um, Present active imperative. It's those Greek verbs again. But Luke uh, had a couple ways he could have said what he said next. But he's recounting by divine inspiration the words of Jesus in Aramaic. And he's conveying the meaning. And he could have chosen the aorist. Ask. It'll be given. Seek. You'll find. Knock. It'll be opened. End of story. Lord, I want this. Jesus' name, amen. Oh, by the way, if it be your will, Jesus' name, amen. I forgot to say that. And, and, and you're done. And that's not what Jesus said. Luke uses a form of the verb that says, start asking and keep on asking. And then start seeking and keep on seeking. And then start knocking and keep on knocking. Because if you keep asking, you will receive. And if you keep seeking, you will find. And if you keep knocking, the door will be opened. And notice the affirmative promises here. For the one who continues to ask, they will receive. And the one who continues to seek, they will find. And the one who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. Now, to be sure, there are times when there's not an opportunity to do a lot of asking, seeking, and knocking. If you're Peter outside the boat in the waves, you know, and you're sinking, Lord, save me. I mean, that's all he had time to say before it was, Lord, save me. And that was all it took. For Jesus to reach down and save him. If you're in the crisis and you really need the answer right this second, God's not going to, you know, tease you. He's there. He, he will meet you in that moment. But that's a desperate prayer. I mean, when you're going down, that's a desperate prayer. That's passionate. It's just short passion. I don't have time here. I'm going to die in about two minutes. So, Lord, save me. Okay, there's passion there. But what Jesus is getting at is that we are to come to the Father, and as we ask, it's okay to ask again. Maybe ask a different way. Maybe probe God. Maybe um, begin to, to say, Lord, you know, this is what I need, this is what I want Am I on the right track? Is this what you want? Uh, This is my concern. And then seek. How do you seek? Well, maybe you seek in the Word. Maybe you're praying with your Bible open and you're saying, God, I need some direction. I need some answers. I need you to talk to me. I, I need to pick a path here. Listen, our church is in a moment of seeking. We're in the seeking phase of a prayer need. You know what it is? They're going to tear that parking lot up in three months. We have money sitting in the bank. We're not 100% sure what to do with it. We don't know whether to 
fix this up or whether to move. We don't know whether to, you know, to sell and buy. We don't know what to do, but we're, we're asking and we're seeking. Now we're seeking. We're talking to a realtor. We're talking, uh, we're looking at property. We're considering options. You know, we're starting to, to kind of push around and, and test the waters and, and we're asking God for guidance. And, and I will be very honest and tell you, I do not have a clear word from God this morning on this subject. If I did, I would tell you. I don't have it. I don't know that I may be the first to get it. Somebody else may get it. But I'm waiting for God to speak in such a way that in my heart and in your heart, there's confirmation in the Spirit that this is what we're supposed to do. I need to know that. I can't just use my wisdom and smarts and say, okay, church, I think, I think we ought to do this. Well, that scares me. Because I don't know the future. And so I'm seeking. And we're seeking. The CLT is seeking. I hope you're seeking. And then there may come a day when Okay, it's starting to take shape, and now I'm going to start knocking on some doors. As I'm praying, I'm going to be knocking. I'm looking for a solution. And one of those doors is going to open, and we're going to walk through it. And that's what he's talking about here. Does what you're asking matter? Is it important? You say, what is to be, will be? What are you, a Muslim? I'm serious. Do Do you think fate is just in charge? Do you think prayer makes any difference at all? The one that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The Muslims are the ones that say, let God's will be done. And they say it like, nothing I can do about it anyway. Jesus is presenting a totally different paradigm. And it's not just in Luke 11, it's in John 15, it's in Luke 18, it's in many other places. God wants to partner with us. And remember the model prayer. You start out with, Father, the one in heaven, I glorify and magnify your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. My first priority is your priority. It's your will. It's your purposes. It's your kingdom. I'm very concerned about that, Father. That's my number one issue. We'll get to my needs in just a moment. But I'm praying for your kingdom. Okay? Jesus says God is looking for people that will partner with Him in prayer to take action and see results. Prayer changes things. It creates new circumstances. How do you pray for somebody that's lost? Will God violate their free will and force them to be saved? I don't think so. I don't have any scripture that says He's going to make people get saved. But you remember Paul on the road to Damascus? You remember what Jesus said to him? It's really hard for you to kick against the goads, the, 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 the spears, the pricks, the prods. 
Paul, <laughs> you're swimming upstream, man, and there's, there's things poking at you. It's really tough, isn't it? It's time you came to Jesus. How do you think that happened? Do you think the church says, oh, oh, no, oh, oh, Saul was on the loose. Oh, we're done for. Oh, this is a mess. Oh, what are we going to do? He's going to kill us all. Don't you think they were praying? I'm not sure they were praying for Paul to get saved. They may have been praying for God to kill him, for all I know. But it was like that. they were praying. They were asking God to take action. Of course they were. And he did. One of the greatest apostles and prolific writers of the New Testament came out of that dramatic conversion because God got a hold of him. How do you pray for a lost person? Scripture after Scripture, you get a whole Bible full of them. Do not let the Holy Spirit rest. Ask every day. Ask. Bring enlightenment. Bring illumination. Bring this scripture to bear on their heart. Bring them into someone that will share Jesus with them. Cause them to be aware of their sin. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does? He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Make them aware they're going to die someday and face you and go to hell. Bring that to their mind. Lord, I, over and over, you've got, you could pray for a year and not run out of different ways to pray for a lost person. And God will do that. I believe when I ask the Holy Spirit to take action in a person's life, that He does it. He will do that. And when He does it, over time, who knows how the will will be broken and worn down And that person will bend the knee to Jesus Christ. Is God going to make them? No. But their life can sure be miserable until they get it figured out. And you can pray for that. How do you pray for missionaries? How do you pray for people? How do you pray for your family? How do you pray for your friends? So many ways that you can pray. The question is, are you passionate about results? Do you want the answer? Does it matter to you? Do you remember what you prayed a day later, a week later, a month later? Is it on your mind? That's what God is interested in. And Jesus says, when you pray like that, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, next week, we're going to talk about snakes and scorpions. But for the time being, I want to draw a big line under passion and suggest that it borders on impudence, desperation. This really matters to me. God is interested in that. And it leads to an answer. And the answer is not... Oh, if it be thy will, whatever, let it be done. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll probably never see that again. No. Effective prayer brings results. Father, uh, teach us how to pray. We need to learn this. 
We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.